All right. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to Weekends with Anna Nando. Anna Kasperi and Nando Vila, of course. Nando's jam into the song. Uh, our opening song, song. Slaps. Yeah, I like the, the music to bring in um, the Jacobin show as well. It's really good. Uh, but mm. anyway, it's been a crazy week. Uh, lots of... <laughs> A lot has happened. Uh, we had the Georgia runoff races where uh, John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock uh, won, which gives Democrats uh, a very slim majority in the Senate. Uh, so it started off with some good news and then, of course, was immediately followed with a lot of bad news, uh, including what we experienced in the Capitol building. Um, today's show is going to have a looser format. Uh, we pre-taped an interview with Noam Chomsky, and we actually did that prior to what happened in the Capitol. So uh, for those of you who listened to that interview and wonder why we didn't ask any questions about what happened <laughs> in the Capitol, just know that it was pre-recorded prior to that um, you know situation unfolding. Um, and I, I'm know, not- It's my fault. I it's my fault. I should have asked him because I've been, I was, you know, deeply involved in the subreddit, the R, the Donald, where this all was planned. And I knew, I knew it was coming and I should have just <laughs> had the foresight to ask him, uh, you know, about an event that was going to happen in the future. But so that was my bad. Yeah. And look, if, if we had the opportunity to like get him back on today and, and ask him questions about what occurred, you know, I don't even know if I, I really need to ask him any questions. I just want to he was just so right. I mean, he was so right about so many things prior to the general election happening, like the reasoning uh, that he had for voting for Biden um, as opposed to voting, not voting at all or voting for a third party, which is essentially throwing your vote away. Let's keep it real. He was right. Uh, he was absolutely right. So, um, you know, go back and watch our uh, conversation with Ben Burgess about that. That was uh, several weeks ago, and I really enjoyed that conversation. But nonetheless, uh, more programming notes as we move forward. Uh, we are going to have a looser format today. Uh, I-, I wanted to have more of a discussion rather than a decode segment for my part of the show, where I usually do like a monologue. Um, Nando has a fantastic uh, decode segment coming up in just a minute. Um, and then we'll uh, end our show today with the pre recorded interview uh, with Noam Chomsky. But before we get to all of that, uh, of course, we want to spread the word about one of our partners, Verso. So uh, take it away, Nando. All right. Well, you know, you can join the Verso Book Club and get every new ebook that Verso publishes each month, as well as one to four books in the mail. All Verso Book Club members will also get 50% off all books for as long as they are a subscriber. As a special introductory offer, each member tier is 50% off for your first three months. The reader tier is only $5 a month for ebooks only. The comrade tier is $20 a month. And if you join in January, you'll get Learning to Fight in a World of Fire by, in a World on Fire by Andreas Malm. The Care Crisis, What Caused It and How Can We End It by Emma Dowling. Capitalism and the Sea. The Maritime Factor in the Making of the Modern World by Liam Campling and Alejandro Colas. Lessons on Rousseau by Louis Althusser. Althusser. Yeah. So, yeah, great, great titles from Versa. Love it. Love it. So definitely check them out, guys. All right. So let's get right to your decode segment. Um, you know, lots of great points made in uh, response to what happened this week in the Capitol. Take it away, Nando. Yeah, you know, I was trying to come up with a topic for my decode. I was like in the chat. I was like asking for ideas. I was like trying to desperately to talk about anything other than the thing that happened. But I just couldn't help myself 
You know what I'm talking about, that thing that happened. Yeah. A band of several thousand deranged Trump loyalists stormed the Capitol building and occupied it for several hours at the behest of several of the country's political leaders, like Josh Hawley and, of course, Trump himself, and with tacit complicity of the police, all playing out on live TV. And I have to admit that while it was going on, I was in a state of kind of paralyzed shock. I mean, how is one supposed to react to something like that? But as time wore on, and a couple of days went by, I was reminded of a quote by Karl Marx himself from the 18th Brumaire, quote, men make their own history, but they do not make it as they please. They do not make it under self-selected circumstances, but under circumstances existing already, given and transmitted from the past. And it's absolutely true. The QAnon shaman did make his own history when he stood inside the Senate chamber, but he did not make it as he pleased. He is a product of the circumstances existing already, given and transmitted from the past. And as I think about what happened on Wednesday in the literal halls of power of our nation's capital, I can't help but think that it was the only logical endpoint to the Trump era, an era dominated by the man himself, an era in which his very peculiar brand of reaction and a politics of permanent conflict, which only served to distract us from the ongoing social collapse we've been living through since at least 2008 financial crisis. Trump was able to harness the frustrations and anger, but never able to turn them into real political action or policy. It was just getting people mad all the time for the sake of nothing. I mean, it's worth remembering that for all his bluster, the Trump administration and his Republican enablers, which controlled all three branches of government, managed to pass just one major piece of legislation, a grotesque tax cut for the already very wealthy. But despite that relative inaction in terms of major policy, We've lived through four years of anxiety-inducing permaconflict, which in retrospect was necessary for a right that needed to sell its unpopular agenda to its base, whereas Reagan had the moral majority and the religious right to sell his politics of upward economic redistribution, Trump had QAnon and Pepe Means and owning the libs to sell his. And to the extent that Trump felt new and unique, and in many ways he was, It was in the way that that famous line in The Leopard had it, quote, everything must change so that everything must remain the same. Trump came and went and the same rich assholes got richer and the poor got poorer. But what to make of the events of this week? Well, the difference between the left position on Trump and the liberal position on Trump has always been that the left sees Trump as a symptom of a broader systemic malaise, whereas liberals see Trump as the cause of all our problems. Witness the way liberals have rehabilitated the reputation of one George W. Bush, a man they absolutely loathed when I went to see a bunch of old rockers at the Vote for Change tour in 2004. And the reaction to the storming of the Capitol broadly tacked along a similar line. I don't think anyone can say that this is, quote, normal, but I think that we on the left see this as a continuation of something and hopefully the logical endpoint of something that is much deeper. The liberal response, on the other hand, has been to flex their authoritarian instinct, i.e. the people involved should be found and prosecuted, our Silicon Valley overlords should manage our democracy by banning the presidents of the United States, which they did. 
And the implications of that decision will be far-reaching and reverberate for years. Obviously, there is catharsis for liberals in seeing the president they hate banned from his favorite social media platforms. But the president is an the precedent is an important one, and we should ask ourselves whether we want to give this power to unelected billionaires to ban our elected leaders from what is a de facto public square controlled by private mega corporations. And last but not least, liberals are looking to pass a new Patriot Act to deal with, quote-unquote, domestic terrorism, which President-elect Joe Biden has already promised to do. Here is the Wall Street Journal reporting, quote, Mr. Biden has said he plans to make a priority of passing a law against domestic terrorism, and he's been urged to create a White House post overseeing the fight against ideologically inspired violent extremists and increasing funding to combat them. And we know how that's going to go. Evan Greer, writing in Fast Company, reminds us that, quote, expanding the U.S. government's already bloated surveillance state will only bring more terror and harm to the same communities that Trump targeted with his racist policies and rhetoric. More money, weapons, and technology in the hands of the Department of Homeland Security, an agency complicit in human rights abuses long before Trump took office, won't stop the rising threat of right-wing violence. Instead, it will be used to suppress legitimate dissent and disproportionately target black and brown activists, Muslims, immigrant communities, and social movements that effectively challenge systemic injustice and corporate power. We know this because we lived through 9-11, which was a horrific act only compounded by our response to it. A global war on terror abroad that has killed millions and a radical expansion of the surveillance state at home, all costing trillions of dollars. So where do we go from here? Well, I think it's safe to say that despite fears to the contrary, Joe Biden will be inaugurated on January 20th and the Democrats will take their majority in the House and Senate. In other words, Trumpism was defeated after four years in power. So what will happen to the Republican Party now that it has unleashed these dark forces amongst their base that are loyal to Trump as a person? rather than a sp- any specific policy or party, and are clearly spinning out of con- the control of someone like Mitch McConnell or Lindsey Graham, who was berated by a group of Trump supporters at the airport yesterday. Yeah, you love to see it. So Cory Robin has been making the point for years that despite the fact that the Republicans controlled all three branches of government, it was actually remarkably weak, the Republican Party, especially compared to its years of ascendance in the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s. That's probably true. And hopefully its turn towards Trump and his cult of personality will leave it even weaker than it was now that he's gone. I mean, will Josh Hawley be able to rouse the same passionate support that Trump was able to? I'm skeptical. And what about our good friends, the Democrats? Well, now they are in power, but not exactly in a commanding position. They were able to retake the Senate, largely by promising the voters of Georgia that if they sent Ossoff and Warnock to Washington, they would immediately pass $2,000 checks. Joe Manchin, the Democratic senator from West Virginia, Virginia, has already thrown cold water on that idea. It may still pass. But it's not guaranteed by any means, despite the fact that Biden, Schumer and Pelosi are all on record saying they will get it done. The backlash, should they fail to do it, could be devastating. But the immediate task of the Democrats is to not fuck up the distribution of the vaccine. No small task in a country with almost no public health infrastructure and rotting institutions after decades of neoliberalism. 
And if liberal Bay Andrew Cuomo is any indication, their head is just not in the right place. You know, this vaccine uh, can be uh, like gold to some people. Uh, and uh, if there's any fraud in the distribution, you're letting people get ahead of other people or friends or family or they're selling the vaccine, uh, you'll lose a license. But uh, I do believe it should be criminal. And I'm going to propose a law to that effect. Listen, I get it. It's annoying that certain people will skip the line. But the top priority should be to maximize the amount of people vaccinated as quickly as possible. Right now, we're way behind schedule on that front. And it's not time to be precious about means testing the vaccine rollout. The quicker, the better. The more volume, the better. But beyond that, the Democrats' challenge will be to repair a society that is utterly broken, as we've seen from the events of this past week. Biden's response to the crisis was a speech so filled with empty platitudes that it barely registered. And in terms of policy, there are some decent things on the agenda from an expansion of infrastructure, spending, and some climate stuff. But ultimately, the tax, the task of fixing America's rotten political order will come to the working class. Will there be an organized workers' movement that will challenge the balance of power away from corporate dominance? History has taught us that whenever there has been any reform that has benefited the mass of workers, it has come as a result of pressure from below from an organized and militant working class. Progressive outcomes are connected to the class power of working people because they're what keeps society chugging along. If we just try to appeal to politicians' morals, combination of their specific donors and their general requirements to keep corporate profits in the green will nearly always, always, always take priority. The only way we've successfully gotten politicians to pass legislation that benefits working people is when working people have had the collective power to threaten corporate profits. We can only out-pressure the economic elites on our politicians if we challenge our boss's ability to make profit. To steal a line from Margaret Thatcher, there is no alternative. Yeah, I mean, I I agree with a lot of what you said, um, you know, especially in regard to Democrats not really being up to the challenge um, of the moment that we're experiencing right now. Uh, you know, Joe Biden, ha- Joe Biden was even against, um, you know, just the procedural uh, like resources that Democrats have at their fingertips to to hold uh, Trump accountable, whether it's uh, doing an impeachment investigation, whatever it is. I mean, think about it. This is a guy who has even though he's been, um, you know, banned from Twitter and social media, he's still a person who has a tremendous amount of power, a tremendous amount of access to things that are incredibly dangerous, like like the nuclear codes. Uh, there have been stories about him potentially doing some sort of military strike against Iran in order to uh, scare Americans into uh, and, and persuading Americans into keeping him in power. I mean, all sorts of terrifying things that I hope don't actually come to fruition, which is the reasoning behind people who want to get him out of office as soon as possible. I, I don't I don't even know how to process everything that's been going on, um, which is why I want to have like a lengthier discussion about the events that unfolded at the Capitol. Um, as I was writing my decode segment today, I wanted to focus specifically on power building. And, uh, you know, Nando, you recommended uh, Robert Caro's books. I've been obsessed with them ever since you recommended them. And just learning about legislative power and how to wield it um, has been helpful. And I'm going to save that decode segment for next week. Uh, but for the purposes of 
today, I, I do want to you know respond to some of the things you said and then share some of my own thoughts. Um, so in regard to fears on uh, another version of the Patriot Act that will violate our civil liberties, that's a legitimate concern. I'm certainly worried about that. Um, but I think it's also important to put everything in context, even, you know, recent historical context, because under the Obama administration in 2009, there was a group of, uh, you know, government officials within the Department of Homeland Security who were specifically tasked with investigating growing right-wing extremism in the United States, domestic right-wing extremism. Now think about how at that time, of course, uh, DSA was hyper-focused on um, monitoring, surveilling, and, uh, you know, uh, persecuting essentially uh, Muslim Americans. And I'm sure that's continuing, but we have you have this small group Wait, of people D- in DSA. Not DSA. <laughs> Did I say DSA? Oh my god, I apologize. I misspoke. <laughs> I was like, I was like, where's this going? What was DSA doing in 2009? Oh my like- gosh, I apologize. <laughs> I I clearly misspoke. Let me be absolutely clear. Department of Homeland Security is what I'm talking about. Obviously, DSA. Um, there's been a lot of talk about DSA for awful reasons online, and maybe that's the reason why I said DSA accidentally. But I misspoke. Let me start that again, though. Um, so in 2009, there was a group of, um, you know, government officials within the Department of Homeland Security who were tasked with uh, investigating right wing extremism in the country, which has only grown to be more of a problem. Right now, the uh, conservatives in Congress were outraged when they found out about this and applied enough pressure to the Obama administration to essentially disband that group of investigators within the Department of Homeland Security. And so what happened following that? We saw right-wing extremism uh, continue to grow within the United States. The FBI has been studying this for years, has been warning about this for years, has referred to this as a concerning national security threat for years. Uh, but conservatives have all the power because... You know, neoliberal Democrats immediately stand down as soon as they get criticized for even doing the right thing. And so it's led to this moment, right, where this wasn't something that came out of nowhere. I mean, they were on message boards, you know, planning this for weeks. And there were like open, transparent threats for weeks. And obviously what we experienced this week in the Capitol was um, an intentional uh, lack of security and policing to ensure that they kept the capital safe, kept, you know, lawmakers safe. It's just horrendous behavior. So now, of course, yeah, I'm worried about the pendulum swinging in the extreme opposite direction where people due to fear are going to be welcoming toward uh, policies that do violate our civil liberties and our freedoms. Uh, we're going to give government more power to surveil us, but we need to understand why we got to this moment. We got to this moment because of the um, pathetic, uh, cowardly actions of Obama. All it took was a little bit of pressure from conservative lawmakers for him to advocate for disbanding that group of DHS lawmakers who were investigating right-wing extremism in the country at the time. I want to make that point. Um, Well, I I guess my response to that would be like, I mean, obviously, right wing extremism is a thing that exists, right? And it's it's the question is, like, how do you deal with it? Do you deal with it in a in a sort of um, punitive policing militaristic way through uh, agencies like the FBI or DHS? I mean, I see it kind of like. The um, like, what do you how do you deal with drug cartels? And like the the United States is, I mean, drug cartels are bad. Chapo Guzman is bad. 
um, all these people are bad people and they do bad things. Um, and the, the response to the presence of drug cartels in the drug trade has been to fight them, just to, to, to fight them using our military weapons. Um, and that has not done anything to stop it. It's just created more violence. It's just created yeah. uh, more, you know, it, it, does, it does nothing to solve the problem. And so, I, I mean, my reaction to something like um, the FBI and uh, the DHS investigating, quote unquote, right, right wing extremists is, is one of like extreme skepticism that they could even that, that anything like that would be a way to stop things like what we saw in the Capitol. I mean, that's just. You know, I I don't think that the the punitive response to something like that is going to to stop this. In fact, it could probably inflame all of this stuff. Um, and you know, I just so my, my I'm just very skeptical that, though, of that Nando, response. I think I think it's important to have uh, people who are dedicated to foiling. Uh, plots like what we experience at the Capitol before they actually happen. And my, my point is we don't have that at all. I'm not saying to respond in a militaristic fashion, but there needs to be enough, um, intel to at least be prepared for what we experienced, uh, this week, right? And, and one of the other concerns is even with that kind of intel, uh, clearly there were law enforcement officials, Capitol Police specifically, who were e- expecting this to happen. They were expecting this to happen. Uh, the Pentagon reached out to them and asked them three days prior to what happened in the Capitol, uh, pr- three days prior to this riot, hey, uh, do you guys need, um, you know, extra people to ensure that we secure the Capitol? They said no. They rejected it. As the riot was underway, U.S. Capitol Police were uh, approached again by the Pentagon. They asked, okay, do you want do you want additional law enforcement now? Do you want the FBI to be involved? What? And they said no. They rejected it. And then you see images of, um, you know, two different types of, of situations with Capitol Police. On one hand, you had Capitol Police who were legitimately trying to control the situation. And then you had Capitol Police who enabled it. You know, you see them taking literal selfies with these rioters. Um, they were, un- they were definitely outmanned, right? So uh, I don't begrudge any of the, uh, Capitol Police who didn't, uh, respond super aggressively because you don't want to escalate the situation further knowing that you're outmanned. But the question is, why were they outmanned in the first place? We have a little more clarity on that. But more importantly, why is it that we still have these apologists for law enforcement who are clearly in favor of what we experienced, right? Want to enable it. We have an issue with white supremacy uh, within our law enforcement. Uh, that's been well documented as well. And I'll give you some more details in that in just a second. But Nando, like my question to you is, okay, so what do we do? We just let it go. We just let this kind of shit happen over and over again. And all right, it is what it is. I mean, we don't have any answers. We just know that we don't like uh, you know, militarism. We don't like these government agencies. Uh, we know that they abuse their power all the time. So what is the answer? I guess that's my question. Well, I mean, I think it's broadly speaking the same the same answer that we would say to, you know, the flip side of that, which is um, uh, what's our answer to, um, you know, the, the sort of overly aggressive responses to the Black Lives Matter protests. Or it's the same thing as like, you know, kind of our response to the rioters, for example, in in over the summer after the George Floyd press that, that destroyed things. It's like these things, these these behaviors, rioting and property damage are the inevitable behavior of a system that produces 
the kind of misery and inequality that our system produces. And that a sort of punitive response to that is only going to make things worse. That unless you kind of change the underlying conditions, then you're you're going to get more and more of this. And it like the the sort of instinct is a real one to so like you can't let this happen. I mean, it's you can't let a you can't let like a, a business just burn on the street. You know, like that you can't let that happen either. Like that's that's obviously like an appalling thing that has happened. Um, but the question is, what do you do about it? Do you do you ramp up the sort of policing aspect of it, or do you try to to address the underlying conditions? And obviously, the presence of right wing extremists within law enforcement is a terrifying problem, and it's one that's not new. I mean, you know, Mark and it's like, not OJ got off because at all. O- and OJ got off because Mark Furman was a literal Nazi, right? Like, that, like, like we, you know, the, the cop who showed up, the LAPD guy who showed up to, to investigate the crime was a literal Nazi. That's like one of the main reason why OJ got off. So, I mean, that's, it's, it's, it's this, the flip side of the same thing. And it's like, we, we can, we can sort of say like, well, those people are worse than, than, than the, the people who are nominally on our side. Um, but you know that that's just not how that's just not how it works in reality. Like the re- what what it works in reality is that like all these things always end up rebounding back to our side and in much more um, violent and punitive ways. Um, so that's what I think my instinct is to like as 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 horrifying as the scenes were in in the Capitol, and there were like there's there's no there's no way around it. You can't like. You can't like minimize the 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 shocking nature of it, but it's my instinct is always to like let's put a pause on kind of our um, reaction to this because often the reaction can only make things worse. I mean, it's the same in nine eleven. It's the same. It's just the same when whenever we're shocked by something like this, like some symbolic, some symbolically important and horrifying attack. Um, we we sort of we our instinct is to we have to do something about it. We have to do something. You know, it's the same thing when we see a, a human rights abuses abroad, right? It's the Samantha Power uh, argument. It's like, how can you stand by while hundreds of thousands of people are being murdered in 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 Rwanda? Um, you know, it's it's like, yeah, yeah, I know, but like, you know, my my issue is, and I'm not look. Let me be absolutely clear for anyone who might mistake um, the way I'm talking about this as wanting uh, more of a security state and a surveillance state. I do not want that. In fact, we already have an insanely robust security state. I mean, when you look at the images and the videos of uh, the police force, uh, you know, uh, working, working, or, or let me put it better. When you look at the police response to Black Lives Matter, it is abundantly clear that we already have an overly robust uh, surveillance state and security state. There's no question. But I guess the point that I'm trying to get at is that we talk about these issues as if they're not asymmetric. They are asymmetric. We're talking about a group of people uh, who were involved in the uh, Black Lives Matter protests over the summer who really don't have much power. Let's keep it real. No power. And then we look at the other side and they have the police on their side. They have, I mean obviously an abundance of weaponry on their side, they have much more power on their side. And I think that we make the mistake of talking about them as if they're all, you know, these disenfranchised, uh, working class white people who have just had enough. But that's not even the case. I mean, you look at the demographics of who voted for, for Biden versus Trump, and 
Trump, yes, had some appeal among working class white people, but you break it down. Let's go to the last graphic um, that I have uh, in my segment, uh, you know, that I ordered. You look at that and like people making under $50,000 um, overwhelmingly voted for Biden over Trump. And then as you go further down this um, graph, this bar graph, you see people who made more than $100,000. Um, you know, most of them voted for Donald Trump. Donald Trump is not some populist who's, um, you know, specifically appealing to people who are poor in this country. Donald Trump, as you mentioned in your segment, immediately passed uh, massive tax cuts for the rich, immediately passed massive tax cuts for corporations without getting rid of uh, the deductions and loopholes that they uh, have been enjoying for decades now. He didn't, you know, and guess what? The support for Trump among his base only grew. They only became more devoted to him. And so I think that there are real questions of identity here that need to be addressed, real questions of power that need to be addressed. And I just think that on the left, we keep talking about these things as if like, okay, here, here are the, the solutions we don't like. And what we need to do is just change, you know, the economic injustice that fuels a lot of what we're experiencing right now. But I don't think that that's the full answer either. I think there there are issues of identity that play a role in what happened in the Capitol um, that also need to be addressed. And I'm not really sure how to address it. You know, obviously, like, I mean, it goes back to the argument that, you know, the sort of the straw man argument that Hillary made about like, you know, we're breaking up banks and racism, you know, it's like, no, it won't end res and racism, you know, it won't end, um, the, the prejudice that exists in people's hearts. You know, the question is, when do we see, if we look at history, like when do we see the sort of far right extremism and far right extremist violence under what conditions are those things allowed to, um, really take root. I mean, are you ever going to like eliminate it 100%? Probably not. But the question is like, in what conditions do they actually take root and can take power? And those broadly speaking are in conditions of economic collapse. You know, that that's just been true. That's true in the past. And it's true today. I mean, it's just it's not a coincidence that we're seeing this in the decade after the 2008 financial crisis. I mean, it, there's just no way you can understand anything that's going in. It's uh, going on now um, without understanding that. And to you know, you when you when 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 people make the point that Trump's base is not immiserated, working poor people, that's that's obviously true. Um, and but it is true that in 2016, he did peel off enough to make the difference in the swing states that mattered. Um, and then he largely lost those people in 2020. I mean, that was that was why he lost the election is because working class white men abandoned him compared to 2016 because they saw that most of it was just a, a fraud and that he, you know, that he did pass the tax cut and he didn't pass anything else to help them. But if you don't change, like, I mean... The, I, again, it's the same thing as 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 as, as always. I mean, I, I feel like we're we're beating a dead horse on this show in terms of like, what are the solutions to our problems? Broadly speaking, it's a working a, like a working class movement that imposes a more just economic order. Will that end, you know, rape and um, uh, like interpersonal racism? No, but it'll it'll go a long way to to helping um, to help ameliorate those things. And it will go a long way to creating conditions in which a new type of politics can emerge and it, creating the conditions in which this kind of 
extreme right-wing violence is just not appealing anymore to, to a lot of people. Um, again, that's just, it's not, it's not to say like, I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying we don't have any solutions. I'm saying that the solutions are broadly difficult, but um, yeah, and I'm saying that we should solutions sort of, that don't, Look, they're long-term solutions that do not address uh, what we're experiencing right now. And I think that's part of the reason why I have an issue with the way that this is being discussed. Like, there are two things that that have been frustrating, right? So number one, there's been this um, pretty annoying effort to minimize what happened in the Capitol. What happened in the Capitol is not a joke. Um, you know, when we talk about Uh, attempted coups in countries like Venezuela, we call them what they are. They're attempted coups. The fact that they failed doesn't change the fact that the intention was a coup. These are individuals who were uh, persuaded by Donald Trump's rhetoric for weeks uh, to do what they did. And when you listen to the end of his speech on that very day, he's encouraging them to literally march to the Capitol where everyone knows every member of Congress and Vice President uh, Mike Pence are certifying the electoral college votes. And he even says something along the lines of make sure that Mike Pence does the right thing. They went there with the intention of throwing out what was decided through a democratic process just to ensure that their guy remains in office, something that is undemocratic and unconstitutional, but they didn't care. What their intentions were does matter. I don't think that Donald Trump, um, you know, getting elected out of office is the end of Trumpism. 75 million Americans voted for him. Those people still exist. Those people looked at the last four years of misery, the last four years of instability, uh, you know, the last year of hundreds of thousands of Americans dying as a result of his inability to a pro- like properly address coronavirus. And they thought, no, no, that's our man. That's our guy. We're literally willing to risk everything to get another four years of this guy. So I don't think that we should be minimizing it on one hand. And then at the same time, I do think that it's important to address what short-term solutions uh, we can focus on, if there are any. And if there are no short-term solutions, or at least there is no short-term solution from the perspective of the left, I don't know. I just think that's an issue uh, because we are disorganized right now. We don't have a game plan. Uh, there is a lot of frustration and anger on the left, which has led to quite a bit of division, especially in the last few weeks. So I, I guess I'm just not satisfied with oh, we got to we gotta organize and we got to find long-term solutions. I agree with those solutions. I want to be clear about that. I absolutely agree that the organizing is critical, that changing the system is critical. But in the short term, if we're not allowed to, uh, you know, ban Trump from Twitter, if we're not allowed to, you know, address the ever-growing right-wing extremism in this country in a way that does something about it right now, then what do we, like, what happens? We just let this continue to fester? I think that's where my issues are. I, I mean, I guess I, I mean, the, okay. So like the, the question then is, so like, I mean, you, we, the question is the impulse to do something. You got to do something, got to do something, can't do nothing. Right. Um, I mean, then you have to be very careful about these kind of things. I mean, there are, I, ex- I mean, okay, I'll put, I'll put the example of Europe. You know, Europe has on the books in many countries, like very strict restrictions on like, Nazi speech, you know, it's a crime in France to deny the Holocaust. And, um, you know, uh, there's there's very punitive um, restrictions to the kinds of um, right wing rhetoric that 
you know, we fear. This is the kind of thing that certain liberals and some people on the left here have been advocating for uh, in the past few years. You know what the most like potent political party in France is after the, the sort of kind of neoliberal centrist one? It's the far right uh, xenophobic hard nationalist party, the Front National. Those laws did nothing to stop the sort of march of right wing of, of right wing extremism um, in that country. Um, and this is something that's going on all over the, the Western world, um, this kind of phenomenon. And the question is, like, what what are the solutions? I mean, I think it's I think it's pretty clear to me that banning Trump from Twitter will do nothing to 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 stop the sort of um, the real kind of uh, march towards extreme the extreme right that this country is is doing. I, I that's just my personal um, inclination is to is to think that that that's not going to do anything to do to to stop that. Um, and I do know that the effect of that will be to boomerang around to sort of start banning people who oppose, like, you know, support BDS or support Palestinian rights or, um, like, I know that's going to happen. That's 100% pot, like one pot, like I can take that to the bank that that's going to happen. Um, so I, I just don't think that that's, that's the best way to deal with it. Um, I think that there is something to, um, elite impunity in this country. I mean, this is something that Glenn Greenwald wrote in his book uh, For Liberty and Justice for Some, that starting with the Nixon pardon um, from Gerald Ford in 1976, we've just seen um, a litany of uh, crimes of people in government um, go unpunished or pardoned from Iran-Contra to the Bush war criminals and blah, blah, blah. We can, we can, we can think about that. And I think that there is something to... Um, investigating the actual crimes of people in power and the Trump administration and things like that. Um, and, and the sort of Obama look forward and not back on the Bush war criminals was a sort of tacit um, pardon for uh, very serious crimes and created a culture of impunity or not created, but fomented a culture of impunity that I think we should stop at the sort of up, upper elite level and maybe I can see I can see that argument, but I think that the argument of like the FBI should be ramping up its investigation of quote unquote domestic terrorism, like I do know where that's going to go. And it's not going to really stop the right wing violence. I mean, they might foil a plot here or two. You know, they they don't they're not like blanket, they've been foiling you know. quite a few plots actually among right wing extremists. Um well, including I, I, uh I, what the plot was in Michigan, uh, you know, in response to the governor and what she was just trying to do uh to keep people safe during the pandemic. Uh but yeah, keep going. Well, I also know that they murdered Fred Hampton in you know, in his in No, his I get it. The FBI has done terrible and, and things. I, I get it. Totally well, I know, but that's it. But if, I, if, no, it's not but just if we don't have terrible a things. Investigative body. Like I get it. I get it. Like all of the critique and criticism toward the FBI is beyond warranted. But I guess again, my question is all right, you investigate the crimes that are committed by politicians like Donald Trump. Okay, great. But I also remember the left being incredibly critical of the impeachment investigation, which was a foreshadowing moment, by the way, in what Trump was trying to do in, um, you know, throwing out our democratic process and giving himself an upper hand in his reelection campaign. Uh, that was minimized. That was belittled. That turned out to be a huge joke. And that was also frustrating because, he did something criminal there. Uh, there was a clear quid pro quo. He released the transcripts on his own and he was withholding congressionally appropriated funds for Ukraine unless they announced some sham investigation into his political opponent. That's an issue, right? Uh, and it's just, it was kind of 
miraculous to me, like amazing to me that uh, the left just didn't think that that was something that we should spend any time on. Give them a pass. Let's move on to something else. So it's just even in situations where we can hold uh, people in positions of power accountable, there's always this like, and it's not everyone in the left, but there's a portion of the left that seems to respond in this incredibly negative and enabling way. And I just, it, I don't understand it. I think the the response to the the, the impeachment issue and in the in the, in the impeachment that actually happened um, last year was that the that the focus of the impeachment inquiry was incredibly narrowed to this one I agree. Kind of like Russia incident that which is like you know who gives a shit you know like there's myriad actual kind of very widespread crimes that could be um, that could be used to 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 bring articles of impeachment and that focusing it on this like Russia thing, which no one cared about, like literally no one cared about. Um, it's it w- like took out all the but teeth the impeachment from it. wasn't you know? about Russia. I mean, the impeachment w- was specifically about him withholding congressionally appropriated funds to Ukraine, unless the leader of Ukraine announced a sham investigation into uh, Joe Biden in order to hurt his chances of beating Trump in the election. That was that was the core of the issue, the quid pro quo. But I agree with you in that the impeachment investigation was too narrow in scope. I found it incredibly strange and suspicious that Democrats didn't want to investigate his financial ties and his uh, financial dealings. That, I, I think that's a bigger issue uh, that for some reason they decided to stay away from. Um, but the or the kids point- in cages, you know, like kids, in, like, the, okay, you know what I mean? Like, um, like a crime that actually, I mean, the, the, the okay, again, like the, again, the U- Ukraine quid pro quo thing, like it, it was so nauseatingly small and complicated that no one could, like, no one understood it. No one cared about it. It had zero political effect. You know, I mean, that's the that's the so like so it's as if they did nothing. You know, it's just it's 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 the exact same thing. I mean, I think that that was the sort of left criticism. If you're going to do that, you might as well not do it. You know, if but if you're going to do like an actual impeachment investigation for like actual real serious crimes, like putting kids in concentration camps on the border, you know, like or uh, blatant self-dealing and enriching um, everyone in the administration and in, you know, everyone around you, like. Those are actual kind of crimes that are people can understand and people can rally around. And like this, like, you know, some Ukraine prosecutor that like it's just that I think that that's the that's the that's the issue with the whole impeachment thing as it happened. You know, so, again, I I just think that. There's there's it's so hard to to like look at something horrific and think, what are the tools at our disposal? You know, I mean, I, I, I don't mean to bring we this have none. example up again. We have none. But, but <laughs> like, that's the again, issue. We or, have or, or, or like we have, no, we do have some. They're just, they're like giant bazookas at the problem, you know, and mm-hmm. the bazookas, okay, unfortunately, saying, yeah. like ex- explode um, and kill a bunch of people, you know, like, I mean, it's the same. Again, I, I come back to like, when you, that's the political problem with the sort of, um, you know, here in America of like, you know, getting overly um, angry or um, about some sort of foreign catastrophe is because what are the tools at our disposal? I mean, we have the military machine that we got, you know, if we had some other one, some theoretical other one, we could in theory design one from scratch, which would be able to deal with human rights abuses abroad in a way that actually you know, brought the perpetrators account uh, accountability, like, you know, accountability and also actually solved the problems that led to those things. But we don't. We have 
the war machine that we got, which is kills millions of people, costs trillions of dollars, and only makes things worse. So the instinct for me, whenever there is some foreign catastrophe, is like, don't do anything. Like, the U.S. should not do anything. Like, that's better yeah, than, no, I, than, than the, what, what we do, which is something, like, right. Because doing there's something, a financial is, motive. There's a financial motive behind the actions we take abroad. Um, and what we do over and over again, what our government does over and over again, is uh, use the excuse of humanitarian crises in order to get involved. But that's never the actual intention or the actual motivating factor behind why, uh, you know, we utilize our military in, in these so-called human rights uh, abuse situations. It's all about exploiting that talking point. Uh, in order to uh, sell more weapons. I mean, we talk about this all the time. Sell more weapons. We're experiencing that right now in Asia. We're selling uh, more weapons to uh, Japan than ever before because of this, uh, you know, trumped up threat of China. And so I agree with you on all of that. But I, I, and I definitely agree with you as well about abuses of power and how the government specifically exploits moments where Americans are scared in order to, uh, roll back our uh, rights, our liberties, and abuse their power further, you know, both domestically and abroad. So we agree on that point. I just think, and I don't think either one of us really have the answer, right? So I'm not like specifically calling you out. I just think that, you know, we need to find solutions for doing something about the short term, like what we're experiencing in the short term. Because again, the, I agree with you. I don't think that um, banning Trump from Twitter is going to, you know, completely obliterate uh, what he's built with this giant group of people who think it's totally fine <laughs> to to go and storm into uh, the Capitol building and threaten people's lives. Um, how do we address it? Like the Democratic Party is not fit to lead at all. Uh, we don't have any power on the left right now. We're not organized. What do we do in the short term? And and I guess it's an open-ended question. I don't know if anyone on the left really has answers to it. All I know is what comes across, at least online from the left, has been this um, climate of kind of minimizing it, right? And I don't know if that's what the intention is. I doubt it. Uh, but what that does to people is make them kind of passive. Uh, like it, it makes them think that this isn't like a serious situation and it is, and we do need to think about short-term solutions. We need to have discussions about short-term solutions. We're nowhere close, Nando, you know it. We're nowhere close to being organized enough to change the system under which this kind of disgusting behavior, ideology, brutality, um, has grown. So what do we do in the short term? That's my question. You know, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I think that because because we have no power, that if if we the, the the extent that we have any sort of influence, I think pulling people away from the precipice of doing something damaging is probably the best short term thing that we can do. Um, I agree. I mean, uh, like opposing this domestic terrorism law, you know, as cathartic as that might feel, you know, like that's kind of what I rem I'm remind like the. I don't think many liberals got this when they watched if it, when they watched The Watchmen, you know, which had some very wonky politics. But one of the provocations of of the of the new HBO show Watchmen was like, what if what if liberals got all they want <laughs> in terms of like um, basically like a woke fascist state? And that's like what it was, you know, like where they kind of 
beat down on white supremacists using like an authoritarian police um, and where Henry Louis Gates kind of enforced a sort of uh, ministry of propaganda uh, of wokeness. You know, like that's what it was. That was the provocation at the heart of it. Um, and that's a world that I don't want to, um, you know, I don't want to participate in. You know, I don't want to participate yeah. in that in a march towards a sort of a liberal version of an authoritarian uh, an authoritarian state. Like I just totally agree. I would, I would rather, that's what I would, um, that's what I would say in the short term that we can do on the left is kind of maybe like, maybe pull people off the precipice of like, you know, and, and again, it's, it's that delicate dance of like, you don't want to say like, this is nothing. This is unimportant. This is not, but like, we have to be sort of careful about the solutions. And I think that broadly speaking, um, empowering, the FBI and um, and 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 tech oligarchs essentially to manage our political system is something that I would be very very wary of. Um, but anyway, I don't know. Do should we bring on uh, Young Kale to see what he uh, yeah. what he thinks? And he's 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 chomp he's he's chomping at the bits. Uh, is is it chomping at the bits or at the bit? Um, I think bit, but I could be wrong. It's the bit. Well, for today's show, it's Chomskin, Chomskiing, Chomskiing at the bit, at the bit. <laughs> right? Um, he will. He's going to be on in a moment. I, people in the comments are like, "Where's Chomsky?" And it's like, "Sorry, this is, we're Chomsky now." Uh, he's coming in like <laughs> just a sec, um, and it is pre-recorded, so he won't have anything to say about what's going on, unfortunately. But he, you know, his wisdom I think uh, extends beyond the the day to day, and he still actually does end up saying something relevant to what's happened. Um, I mean, part of it, I, there's a couple of things I want to throw into the mix. I mean, part of it with um, Trump getting banned from Twitter, for instance, my sense is not that Trump was banned because of like the Twitter uh, execs saying, fine, enough's enough. Like, we can't tolerate this kind of speech anymore. We can't tolerate, um, you know, this kind of behavior. My sense is that uh, ads were starting to to pull their their funding uh, into Twitter that they don't want an ad to pop up next to the president while all this is going on, and my guess is it was just it was economic that they said, uh, "Shit, we're losing money uh, by keeping the president on the platform. We're going to pull our funding, or we're going to we're going to sorry, we're going to get rid of the president's Twitter account uh, so that we can resume having ads on our site." And what this kind of ultimately comes back to in some sense is like it's it's just one more example of like the typical leftist critique or like the socialist critique of the last hundred or so years of of government, of the state, which is that ultimately what is running everything is the uh, economic system. It's corporations need to make money. They need to make profits. And so much of what happens in politics, not everything, of course, not everything, but at the end of the day, they end up having a veto power over does the president of the United States get to use a social media platform, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and so in some ways, like, this is unprecedented. In other ways, it's really not at all unprecedented. This is just kind of corporations having their say in government, uh, like they do regularly of saying, yeah, there's there's certain things that are outside of our scope of what makes us money, and we're not going to allow those things. So... You know, um, and so much of the security state is that as well of like, this is a means to keeping the system chugging along, making more profits. And so, 
I would just add to the, and, and I think we were kind of getting to this already in the conversation, but for something like, you know, how do we deal with terrorism or how do we deal with um, uh, violent groups? I think in some ways, I think a lot of what you guys have both said is, is, is useful and thoughtful. And I think you're right to say, like, I don't know if there's a great immediate answer. I would just think, I would just add that, you know, part of what the left has to figure out right now is how to establish priorities. And in many ways, there's certain things that because we're so powerless, we just can't really do much about this issue. And so we can say, well, with our limited abilities and resources and efforts, we can push for maybe, maybe this is, maybe this isn't the right thing. We could, you know, we can campaign around Medicare for all or something. That's been an ongoing campaign for years. Maybe that is the solution to the situation that, you know, we're going to continue to push for Medicare for all. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's we should be organizing around COVID checks or we should be organizing around, um, you know, keeping Biden to his promises on infrastructure. I don't know. I mean, that's I think this is something that the left has to figure out. But I think I think we should always be thinking of this in terms of what can we do, given our limited capacity as you know, mostly a fighting force that actually still has to go to work most of their waking life and does this stuff in their their after hours. So, you know, and that's the other thing with like these these people in, in D.C. with these protesters, like it's mostly middle class people. It's mostly like small business owners, like as Anna was saying a moment CEOs. ago. With, yeah, I mean, you know. Although, interestingly enough, a lot of corporations have come out and denounced this. So, again, the business community does not like this kind of action, um, you know, regardless. And it does seem pretty clear that there was some coordination internally of, uh, you know, that this was all planned publicly. Um, so someone in the national security state or in the D.C. police was like, mm, whatever, you know, we'll see what happens. Um, but at the same time. Corporate America is not terribly interested in mob violence or, you know, or kind of a rise of American fascism or something. I think they're fine with business as usual, and they want to be able to suppress little flare-ups here and there by protesters on the left and the right. Uh, but by and large, like, you know, they they just want to keep making profits. And so, again, I think... In some ways, I think the left, and it's not easy by any means, I think the left has to become as ruthless about establishing our political priorities as our true enemies, our true opponents, capitalist, corporate America. They are as ruthless in their pursuit of profit, like, because they will, you know, without even thinking about it, without even needing to coordinate between corporations, between businesses, between capitalists, they can you know, they can squash us so easily because it's just in their interest to do so. But Yeah. And, yeah. you know, I, since you mentioned um, the people involved, like their um, background and, and where they're at economically, I think it's also important to mention that there were literally off-duty police officers and members of the military who engaged in that riot. Totally. Um, and again, it goes back to the point that I was bringing up regarding the asymmetric nature of, of what's going on right now. Again, we're talking about a group of, of right-wingers um, who have bought into uh, all of the dis disinformation we've experienced throughout the last four years. Uh, they're well-armed. They have the police on their side. 
they are the police in some cases. And we don't have that on the left, you know, and, and to your point, uh, Kale, and, and also your point, Nando, I agree about the uh, risk you take with um, the surveillance uh, state and censorship online, because I do think that this is really about um, ensuring that advertisers aren't uncomfortable with, uh, you know, the platform, Twitter specifically. And if you have Donald Trump threatening capital, what do you think they're going to do to the left when the whole point is to challenge capital? Of course, they're going to, you know, turn their ire uh, against us, ban us, censor us. That is something to be concerned about. That's a legitimate point. Um, but then that does raise the issue of disinformation, propaganda, and how potent that's been, um, because it has radicalized people. The, the young woman um, who was uh, shot and killed by Capitol Police inside the Capitol building during this riot uh, was actually a two-time Obama supporter. Like, she voted for Obama in both elections, thought he was fantastic, and then ended up voting for Trump specifically because she hated Hillary Clinton. But throughout the years, she became radicalized by QAnon and all of these, you know, right wing message boards and forums. And so uh, how how do you effectively fight back against that disinformation? That's also a question, right? Without leading to um, more bans, more censorship uh, that, of course, will have unintended consequences for us. Well, I, I think that the real the real issue with that is like who gets to decide right and if it's de- if it's de- if it's if it's if it's our like democracy that gets to decide that that's that's largely speaking better and that's how it kind of used to be i mean if you if we think about right wing um propaganda in this country it i mean it's always kind of been there but but it really kind of took off in the way we understand it today um with the rise of right wing talk radio in the 1980s uh, and 90s and then um, and then the and then Fox News essentially uh, in the in the late nineties, um, and that w- came to happen out of deregulation of the public airwaves. You know, like that that was that was a very specific result of deregulatory processes in the public airwaves. You know, before that, the public airwaves were regulated by the government, which is broadly speaking democratically elected you know what i mean so it's it's we kind of chose that in a way um and then it was deregulated and then um so now the 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 impulse should not be that um no regulation of media is warranted i do think that the most the healthiest societies that we have in in the world have some sort of media regulation and by the way they also have a very robust public media which is owned by us and controlled by us um, I think that that's a, another like kind of part of it. I'm, I'm, I'm a big advocate for public media. Like I, I, I think that it's, an, there's ways to structure it. You know, the, the fear is always that like, you know, whatever president's going to just like decide what the public media does. There's ways to structure it in which it's still publicly owned, but independent of whatever, um, you know, latest parties in power. But, um, broadly speaking, it's that it's, 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 we should be the ones controlling that not mm-hmm, Twitter mm-hmm. fucking Jack with his burning man beard and, uh, and his intermittent fasting, you know, like, no, but see, um, but see, like, that's, that's, that's what I'm that's talking the, about. Like, that's, that's a good, li- yeah, that's a good, um, you know, short term solution. Um, and when I say short term, it's not like it's going to be easy to accomplish that. Right. Um, but at least it's like a specific thing that the left can prioritize to get it enacted as soon as possible. Like that's, and it's not something, in my opinion, as difficult as, you know, um, 
doing away with private industry in healthcare and, and, and sticking to a single-payer healthcare system. That is a, an incredibly difficult thing to pass, right? We know that. We've experienced how difficult it is. But I think most people understand, um, regardless of where you are on the ideological spectrum, that we do have an issue with uh, disinformation right now. And also, like, uh, and it's not just disinformation by right-wingers. It's disinformation um, that's specifically protecting the elites and and capitalism and, and profits, right? That's an issue as well. So, yeah, I mean, I, I love that. And I want to explore I, that a little more. I always say that the biggest, most consequential bit of misinformation and fake news in my life was that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction propagated yeah, yeah, by yeah, the yeah. liberal New York Times, you know? And the New York Times was the key news outlet to propagate that lie. And it had the most consequential effect of any bit of fake news, certainly in my lifetime, you know. And I, I, I think that that's that's important to understand that like liberal misinformation is just, like is out there, um, and it and it kind of drives the the libs crazy. I mean, that's how you know that's how it, we get a situation in which you know even though voters agree with Bernie Sanders' policies like on every single one they flock to Joe Biden um because they're just being told by these out of by fear these liberal uh, yeah they're they're being they're basically being whipped up into kind of frenzied uh fear-ridden people uh by our liberal media like whether it's i mean mostly i mean I, the, the biggest offenders obviously MSNBC but um, CNN as well and New York Times to a certain degree. Um, so, and again, I think that this comes as a result of we don't have a robust public media. We don't have like the, that, the, the public, like the news is vital to a society. It's information, like a society needs information about itself to be able to make decisions about itself. Therefore, it's a public good. You know, what? like just like the air we breathe is a public good because we need it to survive. Just like clean water is a public good because we need it to survive. Um, the information is that as well. So we should own it. We should control it, not private tyrannies. Right. I mean, that's yep. like that was that's always been Chomsky's kind of case. Who's, who's going to speak in a second? <laughs> you know, like um, anyway, that and, and that's that. I mean, if we're talking about disinformation. I think that we overrate the effect of social media, broadly speaking, and we underrate, which isn't to say that it's a problem, but we underrate the effect of boring ass TV news, whether it's local news, whether it's the cable news, which is still the vast majority of people get the vast majority of their news through those um, sources. It's the most addicting yeah. kind of kind in, in a certain way. People watch tons of TV still, even, you know, like as millennials or cord cutters or whatever, you look at the numbers, like the vast majority of like, people above a certain age just like are hooked on their TV still. Um, and it's just, that's, that's a huge source of it. And it's the question is how do we deal with it? Um, I don't yeah, think I, we should just let Mark Zuckerberg decide. I just don't, I'm sorry. Right, like, but I would, just... I, would, I would say that there's two sides to this though, right? Because at the same time that everything you said is correct, you also have to have a population that is willing to take in that information that like them hearing you know, the elites are, are corrupt or the, um, you know, uh, the liberal media is lying to you, you know, like the, the Rush Limbaugh crowd, like, there has to be some truth to the claim. And so, of course, like what you're saying, both with like, you know, the New York Times uh, being pro-war or, I mean, a lot of this, a lot of like these, these QAnon people, a lot of the Trump support comes out of the fact that, like, 
because again, most of these, like most of the active people in this are middle-class people. They're small business owners. Um, like they, you know, the floor fell out from underneath them in, in 2008 and 2009. And so much of the recovery ended up falling onto them. Like the tea party comes about when it comes about because like they end up sh- like shouldering a lot of the economic responsibility of like, you know, getting out of the recession. And so it, and what happens is like, it's this deep reaction where like, there is no left, there is no left alternative to Obama present available. So like the opposition to Obama is the Republicans. And then this like astroturfed grassroots, I'm sorry, I'm doing scare quotes, um, you know, grassroots uh, right wing phenomenon as the Tea Party, which eventually turns into Trumpian, Trumpianism, turns into QAnon, turns into conspiracy theories. And like, and of course, like the middle class has been falling. I mean, Barbara Ehrenreich wrote like a book in the 80s on like fear of falling. Like the middle class yeah. has like been in precarity for uh, for several decades. You know, it should go without saying that the working class has been in precarity since like that's basically what it means to be working class is to be in a state of precarity. Um, aside from like a blip in history when we actually had unions. Uh, but outside of that, um, you know, strong fighting unions, militant unions. Um, but for, you know, for middle class people, uh, you know, when there's not that like we're going to convert all of these small business owners into being on the left. But, you know, this kind of reaction, this kind of conspiracy theory where it's like, yeah, the elites are fucking you over and they're all pedophiles. And uh, and like and they're they secretly some have degree of arrested. Truth. Yeah, there's some degree of truth. But like we're like. Obama and Hillary and all these people have been secretly jailed by Trump and like there's something about like uh, the Kennedy who who died in the the plane crash in the 90s like orchestrating yeah. this and John Jr. John Jr. <laughs> with his ma- but, with his magazine right yeah yeah well, um, it's the funniest thing about the whole thing is it's the funniest part of it but the thing is that like you know so like some of those people like a lot of the people who went you know. I don't want to say all, in fact, I would say some of the people who went as protesters to the Capitol this week probably aren't going to be receptive to a left political message. But, like, the woman who, who passed away, who was shot and killed by, by police in, in the Capitol building, who had voted for Obama in the past, I think I think there's a chance where, like, that kind of person could have been reached with uh, a politics of redistribution, a politics of like guaranteeing greater personal freedom through like, you know, making sure that you have security in your life, like economic security, uh, rather than like kind of these phony, like, you know, we're going to build a wall or, um, you know, we got to get rid of the pedophiles. Like the left doesn't want the pedophile elites either. (laughs) Like, you know, but we think that the way that you deal with the, the ruling class is through, uh, organizing working people through organizing a labor movement. You know, I think a lot of people on the right, like, although the left should not uh, agree with certain uh, political stances, certain, especially certain social and cultural stances. But at the same time, like, I think there's there's room. And in fact, there's a necessity in the future to bring some of those people over to our side and say, like, we actually have so much more to gain by fighting together for something like guaranteed uh, checks you know, pushing the, the administration on that or healthcare, public uh, um, uh, news and, um, pub, you know, small uh, newspapers across the country covering like what's going on in people's actual lives. 
rather than just kind of like what the algorithm spits up of just like conspiracy nonsense. So, so I, I get you on that and I, I wholeheartedly agree. Um, but something that's been coming up, um, a lot more in, in my thinking recently. Um, and I want to, I want to make sure I differentiate between, you know, supporters and voters on the right wing, um, who maybe fell for some of Donald Trump's populist language, um, in 2016 and um, just separate them from the people that I'm specifically talking about now, which is, you know, the right wing populists who have, um, you know, this desire for authoritarianism, right? Like that exists. And, and how do we account for that? How do we reconcile that? And how do we effectively reject that while simultaneously appealing to people on the right who are reachable and actually do believe in democracy? You get what I'm saying? Yeah, uh, I you know broadly speaking, I think that you I mean you're never going to win over everyone, and there's always people who are just kind of like fascists in their heart, you know, and 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 they're just you know they, that's an instinct that happens in people, and 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 that's true. But like, it is true that but a lot of people are more complex, and 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 it's just and and they respond to a variety of different inputs throughout their lives and their kind of views change and and they don't really understand why they're changing and things like that and and broadly speaking these big social forces are what on the whole um lead to this kind of thing i mean it's we look at if you look at the 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 people who did the 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 capital riots yes it's true they're mostly the petty bourgeois um which is trump's base which so that makes sense which by the way is always been the base of of any sort of fascist takeover always in every country mm-hmm. has always been mm-hmm. that's always been the the case whether it's in italy with kind of like you know small landed gentry um same within spain um same in germany like it's that that's always the base of the uh of of of, of like the most extreme right-wing authoritarianism do same they in make india certain today. In, same in yeah same in, in india Brazil. today do they make certain inroads into the working class that's been abandoned by the political system that is enough to change the balance of power? Yes. But the real bit, and that's the, that's where people think get confused. And that's where people think like this, I cannot like, they make the joke of like the, Oh, it's look at all this economic anxiety. It's like, you have to have a, like a slightly better understanding of history to, to, <laughs> to know that that joke is nonsense, you know, like that, that, right. that yes, yeah. of course the base of fascism is always these kind of, um, petty bourgeois, and then it's and then it really flips once like the the, the ultra capital, like you know the, the sort of real um, capitalists are like, okay, yeah, we're just going to go with these guys because the left is too powerful and we're scared of them, you know. So that's that's why I, that's one of the reasons why I'm not like a, afraid of a of a sort of real coup fascist t- takeover in this country, mostly because there is no powerful left to fear, <laughs> and that's always what like fascism is a response to that. Um, but I think that broadly speaking, like we have to have a coherent message with a clear enemy and a clear kind of politics around it that is that appeals to people's self-interest that appeals to people's kind of real base self-interest not their kind of morals or their ethics or anything like that it's like this we will make your life better um with this political program and you i we will peel off certain people we will peel off enough people that's all you need you need enough people you're not going to get everyone you're not going to get the like there's definitely bad people in the world you're not going to get everyone but you just that's that's the only alternative that's the that that is the only alternative that's the only solution that there is um and it's 
it's hard to stick your, your, to your guns on it. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I admire Bernie. And I think why he's been so successful compared to other people uh, on like that are ideologically aligned with him, other politicians in which he does not chase, you know, the, the, the rabbit that's kind of like bursting out, out of, out of every angle. Like he, he, he sticks to his guns. He knows his message. He always pivots back to it. No matter what is happening, he always pivots back to it. And it's broadly speaking, a message of economic self-interest to the vast majority of people. That, that's, that's something like people like AOC could, could learn, you know, from him. And, um, and to, to just like, it's, it's so tempting, like when you're in it, when you're in something and shit is happening, shit is happening all over the place and shit is bad all over the place. And it's going to keep happening and it's going to keep being bad and more shit's going to happen. <laughs> like don't get me wrong like bad shit is coming uh down the pike the question is can you can you can you maintain a certain level of discipline and can you maintain a certain level of 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 restraint and not sort of chasing whatever new solution pops up because the vast majority of them um because of the power arrangements and the power structures of this country are only going to rebound back to to the most vulnerable and broadly speaking, the left. Um, I mean, I think that that's just the, and it's, it's some, it is somewhat unsatisfying um, because. Yeah. I mean, look, it's not just unsatisfying. It's just, it just means doing nothing in the short term. Like it, and it, when I say doing nothing, I mean, f- doing nothing to find s- solutions in the short term. Like it just kind of goes back to, Here's what we need to do. It's going to take a super long time. And then in the meantime, what? You know, in the meantime, things are just going to be awful and continue to be awful and get worse. Um, And the thing that's terrifying is the next four years are only going to continue emboldening what we saw in the Capitol, in my opinion. I mean, I don't think it's necessarily going to uh, lead to things as violent as what we saw, but... uh, yeah, I, I mean, I agree. Like, you can try to ban them on social media. Um, you know, you can try to silence Donald Trump. But those 75 million Americans who voted for him still exist. Biden is certainly not going to provide any solutions to any of this that actually address the underlying issues, um, including income inequality. And so these problems and these divisions are only going to get worse over the next four years. And what I'm most scared of is what follows uh, Biden's first term. That That's terrifying. Um, well, that's where, like, fighting for, for checks right now is an immediate thing, yeah. that the left should be rallying around, that we should be That doing will help every- blunt a lot of the bad stuff. It will. Yeah, I mean, it won't eliminate I- it, but it'll help blunt its its appeal a little bit. Well, it'll also it'll help de-escalate the situation that it's, you know, it's become almost like a, um, I don't know, people throw this around so often of just like America's super polarized. It's a land of contrasts, but like (laughs) it is deeply polarized and it is like only going to get worse in the way that Anna's describing. Uh, But I think like, you know, a lot of that is because like most people probably are not most Americans probably are not even that tuned into what's just happened this week because most Americans are still trying to figure out how do I pay my rent like how do I deal with this this virus how do I like keep my job like a lot of people have been a lot of people are unemployed like you know some people unemployed are tuning into all this and some people are saying screw this screw everything like 
So I think, I think part of it to like, part of it to like prove, because I think a big part of the left political project going into the future has to be like making the case that public goods can exist, that like the state can actually provide things in your life and like actually do it in a, in a decent, competent way where like, it's not just there to like screw you over one more time. Like it shouldn't become like mega boss on top of your actual boss. Well, then there's the, the government that then just screws you over even more. Like we have to, to you know, part of it. And I think the checks, you know, just, you know, not that this is like anything that's like, uh, like a conscious effort, but hopefully something like if the Democrats are successful in passing checks, which I still don't put past the Democrats having full control of government to pass these 2000 checks, but we'll see. Hopefully I mean, Manchin's already <laughs> squashed it. Yeah. I mean, right. It's so, absolute yeah. garbage. I'm sure people the in West is, Virginia is, are, will, are will struggling wanna... economically right now. Right. Will some of the Republicans peel off? Right. May, they might over this. They might. I hope so. so. That's where, I mean, you know, to the extent that politics is still, unfortunately, mostly a spectator sport. You know, even though like even though we've had Bernie, even though we've had the the rise of grassroots organizations, like we're still mostly looking at this from the outside with very little influence on what's going on inside. Um, You know, and of course, like that's some of the biggest irony of this whole thing of like the the protesters, like, uh, you know, infiltrating the Capitol um, of like these people that like so hate the government, so hate the elites and like finding themselves all alone in the rotundas, like the um, the our, our guy with the um, the horns. I already forgot his name. <laughs> but QAnon shaman, QAnon shaman. Never forget. Like, yeah, I mean, like, there's no better like illustration of like I said this the other night on like the Jacobin show. There's no other be- better illustration of like you know politicians ruling the void than like the empty rotunda and like protesters in there like all right, I guess what now? Like, we're, um, we're just going to, you know, sit in some desks. We're going to, you know, break some stuff. We're going to steal some stuff. Like, so, you know, I think demonstrating that, like, government can actually do something positive is going to be a challenge for us to show. I mean, it's such a, a we're, like, starting from literally nothing that, mm. you know, to, to say, like, actually, you know, um, and again, between the Trump administration passing tax cuts, like being like that being basically the only legislative achievement outside of, you know, also like re-upping like a trade deal. Um, and the Obama era having very little to show for itself. Like there is no good recent examples in like the last few decades of either administration, like actually effectively pushing through legislation at all, or especially anything that like is in the interest of working people. So, yeah, everyone needs to read like Master in the Senate is a must read, like to understand power. It's about LBJ, but it's real like the the real topic that's being addressed in this series of books by Robert Caro is how to actually understand your power and to use it. And and what really stood out to me from from learning about how LBJ signed the Civil Rights Act is how little he cared about morality. <laughs> like, I don't know if that's the right word, but um, he he really didn't care about what liberals at that time and liberals today as well um, seem to put above doing the right thing, which is just appearing to be good people, appearing to be good, moral, ethical people. LBJ is like, no, I want to win. 
at the right. at the heart of what he did was wanting to win. Now, of course, um, you know he's got an awful history uh, with Vietnam and all of that. But um, in terms of his victories in the Senate, what really stood out to me was his unwillingness to give into this effort for purity. You know, and and we see a lot of that right now on the left, and we need to. Re- I think we need to reject it. Like this whole debate about, oh, is this person progressive? Is this person actually a leftist? Like, just what are we doing to win? And right now, nothing, nothing. That's what we're doing to win. Nothing. We're leading. Uh, we're allowing these ridiculous debates about whether or not someone is a good person enough distract us from thinking strategically and prioritizing in a way that leads to victory, that leads to winning. Um, so, yeah. Um, so, Kale, did you want to make a final point before we go to the interview? No, I was going to say, I think we have the perfect guest to, to tackle all of these issues. And, and I think yeah. hopefully kind of Chomsky has just always been like, uh, like the best rudder on the left of like, uh, we should be going in this direction, folks. Like, we should be focusing on these issues. We should be, you know... So I, I think, because I've already seen this interview, and you both did a very good job, um, I think, you know, Chomsky has a ton to to say regarding, like, what the left should be focused on in the next, you know, year, four years. Um, and hopefully, you know, we'll keep coming back to him uh, because his his ideas, his work... His voice remains very important and probably increasingly important as like there now, you know, again, there now is some burgeoning left, something left of liberalism in this country that is now trying to grapple with these questions. Like it's deeply frustrating, but we're finally actually in these more substantive, substantive debates and arguments and conversations. And, um, you know, Chomsky is one of those people that has, you know, the wisdom of 10 people combined into one. Um, so yeah, unless you guys have anything else, I'll, I'll throw on the interview. Let's get to Papa Nome. Yeah, let's do it. And, and guys, just to remind you again, this was a pre-recorded interview. Um, it happened on Tuesday. So, uh, it happened before before. these rioters, uh, stormed into the Capitol building. So if you're wondering why we didn't ask any questions about, uh, the, uh, Capitol Hill, uh, Capitol rioters, it's because it didn't happen before we had uh, interviewed him. But with that said, enjoy the interview. Um, we won't be coming back after the interview. This is uh, to you know close out the show, but it was about an hour long and it was, in my opinion, fantastic. It was one of my favorite interviews on this show. So enjoy. Joining us now is Professor Noam Chomsky, public intellectual, linguist, and author of many books, including uh, one of the most famous books, uh, Manufacturing Consent. Professor Chomsky, thank you so much for taking time to uh, speak to us today. Delighted to be with you. I wanted to start off by um, asking you to reflect on our current political moment. Uh, in 2020, there were historic uprisings, uh, civil unrest in the country in response to police brutality, and I believe uh, uh, income and wealth inequality as well. Uh, you also have a situation in which uh, people are experiencing a health and economic crisis uh, that has not been alleviated appropriately by our lawmakers. Uh, there was a huge debate about uh, $2,000 direct checks to Americans, and our lawmakers failed to provide that at a time when 
so many Americans are, are desperate to put food on the table, keep a roof over their heads, uh, and pay their rent. And so I wanted to ask you why it is that following so much public support for certain policies, Congress continuously tells the American people that they will not deliver, and they do so unapologetically. Why do you feel that is? Well, one place to look always is where's the money? Who funds Congress? Actually, there's a very fine, careful study of this by the leading scholar who deals with funding issues in politics, Thomas Ferguson. He and his colleagues did a study about a year ago, careful study in which they investigated a simple question. Uh, they, what's the correlation over the years, many years, between campaign funding and electability to Congress? It's almost a straight line. It's the kind of close correlation that you rarely get in the social sciences. Greater the funding, higher the electability. You can find a few cases here and there that aren't right on the line, but it's from the standpoint of social science, it's a remarkable correlation. And in fact, uh, we all know what happens when a congressional representative gets elected. Uh, first day in office, they start making phone calls to the potential donors for the next election coming up. Uh, meanwhile, Hordes of corporate lobbyists uh, descend on their offices. They often have good staff people, often young kids, totally overwhelmed by the uh, resources, the wealth, the power of the massive lobbyists who pour in. Out of that comes legislation, which the representative later signs, maybe even looks at occasionally. I wonder if you can get off the phone to the donors. Uh, what do you think, what kind of system do you expect to emerge from this? Well, we have good studies of it. So, for example, one recent quite high-level study found that uh, uh, the lower, they, they, they analyzed by income, compared, income as compared with uh, uh, decisions by their own representatives. For about 90% of the population, there's essentially no correlation. That is, they're fundamentally unrepresented. This extends earlier work by Martin Gillens, by Benjamin Page, and others who found pretty similar results. This happens to be a little more detailed and sophisticated. But the general picture is clear. The working class, most of the middle class, are basically unrepresented. The... Uh, decisions uh, reflect a very highly concentrated amount of uh, campaign money, not just campaign funding, shows up in all sorts of other ways. I mean, if you're a congressional representative and, and you're going to leave Congress one of these days, either by decision or voted out, where do you go? Do you become a truck driver, a secretary? Uh, just take a look. Well, you know where you go, and you know what the reasons are. If you voted the right way, you've got a cushy future ahead of you. 
there are many, many devices by which you can ensure that the large majority of the population is unrepresented and furthermore, robbed, robbed massively. I mean, the scale is colossal. We have plenty of information about this. The Rand Corporation, ultra respectable, a couple of months ago did a study of what they call the transfer of wealth, more accurately, the robbery of the public uh, by, uh, since the neoliberal assault began in around 1980, last 40 years, how much wealth has been transferred from the working class and the middle class, they use the same 90% figure, the lower 90% of the income scale from them to the very top. And the very top actually means fraction of 1%. Their estimate is $47 trillion. It's not small change. And it's a vast underestimate uh, when Reagan opened the spigots for corporate robbery it's called neoliberalism. Uh, many devices were opened, for example, tax havens, shell companies, illegal before that, and the treasury company and department enforced the law. How much money was stolen that way? That's mostly secret. Private tyrannies don't let us know what they're doing. But there are some reasonable estimates. Actually, there's a IMF study that came out recently that estimated it maybe in the neighborhood of $35 trillion, roughly, just tax havens over 40 years. Well, keep adding this up. It's not pennies. And it affects people's lives. People are angry, resentful, very good reasons, perfect terrain for a demagogue to come along, Trump style, very effective, holds up a banner with one hand saying, I love you, I'm going to save you. Other hand stabs you in the back to pay off the rich and powerful. That's what we've been seeing. Yeah. Trump's an extreme example. Uh, the Democratic National Committee is not that different. No, different, but not that different. In the same game, essentially. So getting back to your question, I think these are the answers. And I guess I guess what what I would follow with is because the the Bernie campaign um, for president, uh, both of his actually were were kind of like a um, a sort of organizing principle for for those of us on the left for a while. And since his defeat in what was a pretty remarkable coordinated effort from the sort of Democratic establishment, the liberal establishment um, has left us with a feeling that there is that there is no kind of next guiding principle. Um, I think I think you're seeing kind of a disorganized and um, inchoate left in a way. Where should those of us on the left uh, direct our energies to address these immense problems, which you just outlined, you know, the, the trillions of dollars on offshore accounts, the, the, the wholesale purchase of Congress by uh, by the business class? Like, where should we try to direct our efforts to fight back? Well, the first thing we should remember is that Sanders' campaign was a remarkable success. I mean, within a couple of years, Sanders and others working with him or alongside him have managed to shift the range of 
issues and concerns that are at the center of attention very far towards the progressive side. That's quite significant. They did it with no funding, no corporate support, no media support. Actually, the media became mildly friendly to Sanders after he had lost the nomination, not before. Before it was kind of like what happened to Corbyn in England, not maybe not that extreme, but something similar. Powerful forces determined to ensure that nothing will go to the left of the most mild social democracy. In fact, if you take a look at uh, so looking back at the success of his campaign, I think one answer to your question is keep at it. You can do a lot more of that. Remember, there was a terrible mistake that was made when Obama was elected. Namely, a lot of the left believed him, which was a, always a terrible error. Uh, the, Obama had a tremendous amount of popular support, especially from young people. Lots of young activists and organizers working to get him elected. The day after the election, what happened? They told him to go home. And unfortunately, they went home. Uh, we've got our man in the office. Now I'll have faith in the pretty rhetoric. So we'll go home. So the first thing he did was stab him in the back, of course, and betray them. And within two years, he had completely betrayed his constituency, and it showed up in the 2010 election. Yeah. It's not that the right wing won the labor vote. The Democrats lost it for good reasons. Uh, by the, in the Kennedy replacement election in Massachusetts, liberal state 2010, uh, even union voters didn't vote for the Democratic candidate. They saw what Obama had done. Okay. The, uh, well, we shouldn't make that mistake again. Certainly not with Biden. Biden is kind of a, kind of a weak read in my opinion. He can be pressed. The important part of the Biden administration, first of all, there are some quite good people in it, especially among the economic advisors, um, but they can be pressed. Uh, we saw it on some of the most important things. So take, uh, Climate change, there isn't any more important issue. If we don't deal with the environmental catastrophe soon, everything else is moot. There won't be anything to talk about. The few decades, uh, maybe not much more. Uh, the, a lot of pressure on the Biden-Harris campaign from Sunrise Movement, others, did manage to press their program toward the progressive side. Not far enough, but still the best program that's ever been produced. Not bad. That meant you could go further. The DNC started hacking away at it. It was pretty striking to watch what happened. I don't have inside information, so can only speculate from what you can see. But what you can see is, and I looked at it, I was looking at it regularly because I was giving lots of talks and uh, interviews on the election. I kept looking at the Democratic program on the web uh, through up through August. It prevented when you looked up when you Googled the Democratic Party climate program, you got the Biden Harris program. 
The last time I saw it was August 22nd. Next time I looked a couple of days later, wasn't there. What you got is how to donate to the DNC. Well, we can guess what happened. I can only speculate. But I think that's the struggle that's going on. And it could continue if the left doesn't make the Obama mistake and believe those who are in power and their pretty words. The same is true of the corporate sector, incidentally, which is running scared. They're concerned with what they call reputational risks, meaning peasants are coming with the pitchforks. So all across the corporate world, you saw it at Davos, you saw it in the business roundtable, group of corporate executives, there's discussions of how we have to confess to the public that we've done the wrong things. We haven't paid enough attention to the uh, stakeholders, workforce, uh, community, but now we realize our errors. Now we're, we've overcome them. Now we're humane and uh, dedicated to everyone. Now we're becoming what in the 1950s was called soulful corporations really dedicated to the common good forget all this business about making money that's just on the side so now we have lots of soulful corporations appealing to the public on their great humanity sometimes taking measures like uh, withdrawing funding from fossil fuel companies and so on they can be pressed now i don't like the system you don't like the system but it exists okay and we have to work within it to change it. We can't say, I don't want it. Let's have another system that doesn't exist. It can be done by pressure from inside and from outside. So, for example, there's no reason to avoid working to try to create an alternative political framework and social framework that ranges from a new party true left party to actions in the economy like taking over uh, creating uh, worker-owned enterprises and cooperatives and localism and agriculture all sorts of things there's a point is a whole array of options open to us and they all have to be pursued so uh, I can ask you uh, 28 questions based on uh, the answer you just gave right now. So many interesting um, points to touch on, but I'll, I'll stick to uh, the theme of what the left should focus its energies on, because I, I agree with you in that Bernie Sanders was certainly incredibly successful in uh, waking people up uh, so they think about politics in terms of um, with class consciousness, which I think was really missing from um, the mindset of the electorate previously. Uh, he also did spark quite a bit of anger uh, because realizing just how much the system is rigged against the average American um, infuriates people. And that anger and rage is is now, I think, metastasizing during this pandemic as Americans, uh, you know, do not get the real financial relief that they desperately need. But what I find interesting is that the 
response from our congressional lawmakers, including Democrats, has been so incredibly defiant. Um, you know, you have people at this point uh, vandalizing, you know, the homes of Mitch McConnell and Nancy Pelosi as a result of their unwillingness to do the right thing for the American people. And this isn't a question about morality. This is really about um, power, who holds power in the country and who uh, wields it and who can actually use it to their advantage. What I'm seeing among the left right now is a willingness to engage in mass protests, a willingness to uh, confront politicians and do so um, militantly. But it, it happens sporadically and it happens in an unorganized way. And so I, I wanted to ask you, how do we effectively organize, especially at a time when it seems like there is um, some emerging disagreement among uh, leftists as to whether or not organizing has been productive or successful? I think people are getting incredibly um, impatient with the lack of influence toward our congressional lawmakers. Um, so I wanted you to uh, share your thoughts on that. Well, the lack of influence goes back uh in the United States, uh, roughly 250 years. So we can start with the Constitution, which was established explicitly on the principle of preventing democracy. There wasn't any secret about it. I'm quite open about it. In fact, the, uh, the major scholarly study, uh, the gold standard for scholarship on the Constitutional Convention, uh, Michael Klarman, Harvard Law Professor, is called the Framers' Coup, the coup against democracy by the Framers. And it goes in detail. It's not, not a radical point of view. It just goes through the hundreds of pages of details of the discussions. It comes out very clearly. Uh, this, the theme of the, of the founders basically was expressed quite well by John Jay, who was first Supreme Court Chief Justice. That those who own the country ought to govern it. That's what we see today in the matters we were just discussing. Those who own the country have succeeded in governing it. Okay? It hasn't been a uniform procedure. There have been plenty of resistance, and lots of victories have been won. So my childhood, for example, 1930s, there were major victories by mainly spearheaded by the organized labor movement, uh, CIO organizing, militant strikes, militant labor actions, moderately sympathetic administration, some lot of political activism of all sorts. Uh, some good things happen. U.S. move towards moderate social democracy. That's, we're still enjoying some of the benefits of that. They've been, a lot of it's been chipped away. Well, no reason why that can't, and there are other periods of American history that are similar. The late 19th century, one of the most radical popular movements in US history developed. Knights of Labor, the populist movement has nothing to do with what's called populism today. Radical farmers, they won't, uh, we're getting together, a major movement, finally crushed by force, state and corporate force, but uh, but with a residue. It, this is a fundamentally a class struggle that goes on through history. You know, 
and we're now we're in a particular stage of it. Well, to say we're disappointed because we haven't succeeded is like saying we're in the world. Yes, we keep struggling, make improvements, some regression, keep going. Uh, slavery was overcome in a, after hundreds of years of struggle, then it came back in another form. It's still, the residue's still there. But it's not that there's no victory at all. You know, there are. Things are better than they were uh, because of constant struggle. In fact, this country's a lot better than it was uh, 50 years, 60 years ago, mainly because of the activism of the 60s. Just remember what the country was in the 1960s. I mean, the country had anti-miscegenation laws so extreme that the Nazis refused to accept them because they were too extreme. Uh, federal funded housing by law for Afro-Americans, not because the liberal senators wanted that, but because you couldn't get anything through uh, the Southern Democratic uh, stranglehold on policy. Uh, Social Security was designed to exclude uh, Afro-Americans, domestic workers, agricultural workers. I mean, there were anti-sodomy laws into this, this century. Now, lots of things have changed. Not easy, but if you say, well, we haven't gotten where we wanted, I'm going to quit. You just guarantee that the worst is going to happen. It's a constant struggle, and it can be done at every level. For, as I said, take, take say, Tony Mazaki, one of the heroes of modern labor and environmentalism, head of the uh, Oil, Chemical, Atomic Workers Union, one of the first serious environmentalists in the country. His constituents are right at the front line being murdered by pollution, uh, destruction of the environment, and so on. This is the early 70s, way before the environmental movement took off. The, his union under his leadership was working very strongly to move towards dealing with the environmental crisis, moved on to try to establish a labor party in the 90s. It could have worked, didn't make it. Uh, the neoliberal assault, beginning with Reagan on through Clinton, Obama, was designed to destroy labor. Every step of the way, moves were made to undermine the labor movement. It was explicit. Uh, Reagan's campaign opened with an attack on the labor unions, uh, even bringing in scabs to destroy strikes. Corporations quickly picked it up. Thatcher did exactly the same thing in England. Uh, the people behind the neoliberal assault understood what they were doing. You have to eliminate the ability of laboring people to defend themselves if you want to crush them the way it's been done. So that was the first step. It's been quite successful. Clinton extended it. His uh, neoliberal globalization policies were designed to protect investors and to crush labor, and they did it. And uh, that has to be, re that's similar to the 30s. In the 1920s, labor had been virtually crushed. The US has a very violent labor history, much worse than comparable countries. 
it's a business-run society to an unusual extent. There was a militant, successful labor movement, early part of the 20th century, after Woodrow Wilson's Red Scare was almost destroyed. 1920s, it was almost nothing there. Came roaring back in the 30s. That's what led to the New Deal policies, the mild social democracy that we still benefit from. Well, that can be done again. In fact, it's beginning to happen in quite interesting ways. So labor had been so crushed by the neoliberal policies that there barely were any strikes. Workers were afraid to go on strike. They'd be destroyed. It started to pick up in red states, ununionized labor, teachers in West Virginia and Arizona, enormous public support, I'm in Arizona. When the teachers began to strike, there was popular support all over the place. You look all over lawns, there's you know, posters saying, uh, support the teachers. You know? And they weren't just calling for higher salaries, which they very much deserve, but calling for improving the educational system, which has been very harshly hit by the neoliberal plague. One part of it has been aimed at the educational system, privatization, defunding, uh, regimentation, uh, teaching to test, all of these things, uh, bipartisan. I mean, Republicans are more extreme, so Betty DeVos was almost openly devoted to destroying the whole system. Doesn't have to be that bad, but Obama's policies weren't much better if you want to look at them. It's, uh, here's the teacher strike, lots of popular support, nurses strikes, service unions, sometimes ununionized, sometimes opposed by the unions, but taking off, it's affected other elements of the working class, big GM strike, and more of that could happen. Uh, the destruction of labor has been a major factor in the extreme inequality. Um, there are some mainstream economists like Lawrence Summers who've concluded that it's the major factor in the extreme inequality, just taking away the ability of workers to defend themselves. Certainly a major factor. That can come back. Alternative political parties like Mazaki's could come back. Uh, pressure on the Democrats to move to the left, like the kind of thing that Ocasio-Cortez squad, others are doing, that can have an effect. It's got to have a lot of popular action behind it. If the troops go home, say, I'm disappointed, I didn't get what I wanted, it's going to move to the right. There's one force that's resentless, relentless. They never stop. The business classes are Marxists, dedicated Marxists. They're fighting a vicious class war all the time. They never stop. If they have an opportunity, they'll move ahead. If the rest of the population leaves the struggle, you know what's going to happen. In fact, we've seen 40 years of it. Yeah. Well, I want to I ask a little bit about the that class struggle because, you know, Piketty, for example, has pointed out that um, across the Western democracies, and it's happened here in the United States, certainly the class composition of the parties has been shifting uh, 
pretty in striking ways. You know, we've seen this kind of phenomenon of the so-called never Trump Republicans flocking to the Democratic Party, um, the Democratic Party's base shifting toward these kind of more upper upper middle class uh, suburban voters, um, whereas the Republicans still don't win working class voters, but are certainly making inroads um, in the working class in ways that they hadn't in the past. What do you make of of that phenomenon that's happened here in the United States, but also in, in Europe, um, where these sort of traditional left wing parties are are becoming parties more and more of the sort of educated elites and um, and, and the sort of working class is getting shut out, basically? Well, let's start with the United States. There is something similar in Europe. So by the late 1970s, late Carter years, the Democrats basically told the working class, we don't have any interest in you, started in the late 70s. The last gasp of pro-labor activity in the Democratic Party was the Humphrey Hawkins Full Employment Act in I think 1978, uh, Carter didn't veto it, but he watered it down so that it was toothless. It was left voluntary, okay, meaning nice words, but you don't do anything about it. Uh, from that point on, the Democrats essentially abandoned the working class. A few gestures here and there. When Clinton came, uh, take, take a look at NAFTA. And NAFTA was rammed through in secret over the objections of the labor movement. They weren't even informed until the last minute of what the, what the framework was, investor rights agreement. Actually, they came out at the last minute, the Labor Advisory Council did come out with an alternative program for NAFTA, say, here's a much better way to do it. Your version, the executive version, is going to lead to a low growth, low wage economy. Here's a way to do it with a high growth, high wage economy. Happened that their program was almost the same as that of the Congress's own research agency, the Office of Technology Assessment. Congress at that time did have a research agency. Congress decided they don't want to be bothered by stuff like information. So they destroyed it a couple of years later, but used to be around. But the OTA program and the LAC program, Labor Advisory Committee, were quite similar. Nobody paid attention to them, never reported. Executive branch didn't care. They wanted their version of NAFTA, which has been which perfectly clear in advance that you have a, an arrangement that's basically an investor rights agreement that sets working people in competition with each other without rights. You can tell what's going to happen. And it did. In fact, worse than what was expected. Turned out that under Clinton's NAFTA, uh, corporations were able to use, to, to break organizing efforts at a very high level. About 50% of them were broken simply by threats to move the enterprise to Mexico. If the threats weren't serious, they weren't going to do it, but the threat is enough to break the organizing effort. Happens to be illegal, but when you have a criminal state, you can carry out illegal acts. So they were carried out very effectively. It's a good study of this under NAFTA rules, actually, by Kate Bronfenbrenner, 
labor economist at Cornell found that what I just described, that about 50% of organizing efforts were broken illegally just by threats to move the enterprise. Uh, that's only one example. But uh, labor has just been smashed by the Democrats. So, well, I told you what happened in 2008. You know it yourself. But 2008, labor voted for Obama. 2010, gone. gone. They'd seen what the promises meant. I remember what happened then. This was a, the midst of a financial crisis, huge financial crisis caused by the collapse of the housing market. Congress under Bush, in fact, had passed legislation, TARP legislation, to do something about it. The legislation had two components. One was to bail out the perpetrators of the crisis, the banks who had caused the crisis with predatory lending practices and other devious semi-criminal actions. So you have to bail them out. The other part of the legislation was to bail out the victims, people who had lost their homes, under foreclosures, lost their jobs, do something for them. Anybody who knows American history and politics could have predicted which half of the legislation was going to be implemented by President Obama. Well, maybe workers didn't know all the details, but they could see it in their lives. Within two years, the working class had large parts of it, even the unionized working class had said, this party isn't working for us. They're our enemy. Where can you go? You can go to the guys who claim that they're going to uh, bring back traditional America or get you jobs. They're not going to do it, of course, but they at least claim to. You take a look at Trump voters. They've been carefully studied. A lot of them say, yeah, we know he's a jerk. He's not going to do anything. But at least he says that he likes us. Okay. He stands up and says, I'm with you. I'm one of you guys. I act like you. It's like George Bush, W. Bush. You may recall that on every weekend he would go off to his, to Texas and his farm and be filmed cutting brush and temperature to show he's a real ordinary guy, you know. After he left office, I don't think he ever went back. <laughs> right, yeah, that's such a good point. But on this act, you know, one of you guys, sometimes it's comical. Remember John Kerry, when he was running, decided to show that he's an ordinary guy, so he went windsurfing. <laughs> yeah. That one a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, one of the other examples was Mitt Romney in 2012, uh, who wanted to brag about his Costco uh, button-down T-shirts. Um, so that kind of theater definitely takes place to uh, pander to working Americans. Um, but I'm sorry, I, I think I interrupted you. Did you want to finish your point? Well, let me just say that the Trump voters, if you look at them, the most careful studies I've seen are those of Tony DiMaggio, a very good social scientist, is left social scientists and a lot of books and articles. But he did recent analysis on what's known so far about the 2020 Trump voters. And it looks like, once again, the core, apart from the evangelicals, you know, 
the white supremacists, apart from those sectors, the main voting base for Trump is basically petty bourgeois incomes from one to two hundred thousand dollars way beyond the median that's not working people uh small businessmen insurance salesmen and so on that seems to be the main base and even greater than in 2016 it seems to have increased the only part that increased substantially a lot of working people think well at least he says something nice to us democrats don't do anything Actually, we saw this dramatically in some of the areas that have been, there's been a lot of lament about. So take, say, South Texas. There's been a lot of study of why South Texas, which hadn't voted for a Republican for 100 years since Harding, moved towards Trump. These are Mexican-American communities. How come they broke with 100 years of voting Democrat? Well, you take a close look, you can see why. First of all, the Democrats didn't make the slightest effort to do any organizing. They're Hispanics, they vote for us. People don't like that, you know. But there was a more serious reason. These are oil-producing areas. All that they heard was Biden wants to take away our jobs and destroy our families, destroy our economies, because a bunch of pointy-headed rich liberals claim there's a climate crisis. Okay. If the Democrats cared at all about working people, they would have been down there saying, look, there's a climate crisis. We are going to have to transition away from uh, fossil fuels, period. You don't do that. Nothing's going to be left. But you can have better jobs, better lives, better economy by moving towards working on uh, changing the industries, maybe under your own control to, to uh, sustainable energy and constructive development, like mass transportation instead of traffic jams, lots of other things. That's what organizers do, okay? They didn't bother. Working class is not their constituency. So they voted for the guy who says, I'm going to bring your jobs back. There's this ongoing uh, there's this ongoing debate about uh, whether or not the Republican Party can be legitimately and sincerely become um, the party of the working class. Uh, this debate about uh, right wing populism. Um, and I would really love to hear your thoughts on that, uh, because I think it's important to push back against that idea, especially when you consider the material interests at play. Uh, but I am seeing uh, right wingers uh, on media like Tucker Carlson, for instance, who seems to pander to the frustrations that so many Americans are feeling in the corporate world. Uh, but I mean, when push comes to shove, I, I, I'm very skeptical that he genuinely cares about uh, workers or changing the system um, to make it a little more equal for for people who don't have as much power as uh, executives in these corporations. But I wanted to hear your thoughts. Is it possible for um, the working class to work together regardless of their overall political ideology, whether they're on the right or the left? First of all, they have to have something to vote for. If the Democrats say, we don't care about you, now, we're the party of Wall Street and rich professionals. Uh, we have Hollywood stars at our 
events and who cares about you? Uh, yeah, so I'll vote for the guy who's, I like you. I act like you. I, I hate the elite. Vote for that guy, even if he's not doing anything for them and in fact screwing them. Uh, if you want to look at these Republicans who claim to be pro-working class, take a look at how they vote. So take a look at how they voted on the one legislative achievement of the Trump administration, the tax scam, which gave a huge amount of money to the very rich and is stabbing the working class in the, in the back. How'd they vote on that? Uh, how do they vote on uh, the way the uh, the STEM, the CARES program was administrated so that it goes to banks who then decide how to distribute it and they give it to their rich clients. So billionaires are making out like, you know, like uh, uh, pirates. It's amazing. They're doing great. So ask how they voted on that. Now take a look at the actual legislative actions. It's very easy to get up and say, I'm for the workers, you know, easy. Uh, if nobody else is saying anything else, maybe people will say, well, at least he says he likes us. Unless there's an alternative, nobody's, the votes don't mean anything. People are voting just out of frustration if they vote at all. Remember, almost half the population doesn't even bother. Uh, the, uh, uh, so unless there's a constructive alternative, people aren't going to join. And it, there can be. I mean, it's pretty amazing when you look at the United States. Take a look at the liberal press, the most liberal commentators, people I like actually, uh, writing about the Sanders campaign. They said his proposals are very good, but they're too radical for the American people. We've got to be more mild. We can't be that radical. But what are the proposals that are too radical? Well, take a look at Sanders's the programs he highlighted. Top one, universal medical care. Do you know of any other country that has universal medical care? I mean, can you think of a country that doesn't have it? <laughs> one of the chief correspondents of the London Financial Times, Rana Farahar, she's associate editor, a very good columnist, I wrote a column in which half jokingly, she said that if Sanders was in Germany, he could be running on the Christian Democrat program, the right wing party. Of course, they're in favor of universal health care. Who isn't? You know? uh, the other program is free higher education. Again, you find it almost everywhere. The most high performing countries, Finland, others, sure, Europe, Mexico, it's all over the place. That's too radical for the American people. I mean, that's an insult to the American population that's hard to find words to express. That's coming from the left end of the mainstream spectrum. Well, the left, the authentic left ought to be able to break through that. They ought to be able to break through and say that Sanders' programs, it wouldn't have much surprised Eisenhower Eisenhower was strongly pro-New Deal. His position was anyone who questions the New Deal doesn't belong in the American political system. I mean, under the neoliberal years, things have moved so far to the right at the elite level, at the power level, 
that it's hard to remember what was normal not long before. Well, these are tasks for the left. You can reach people with that. You can reach people with reviving the labor movement, moving towards a labor party, pressing the liberal part of the Democratic Party towards moderately social democratic ends, particularly on things like climate, should also mention nuclear weapons. It's not talked about. It's a major threat to our existence. The threat is increasing enormously. One of Trump's many crimes was to dismantle the whole uh, arms control system and move, initiate moves towards creating very dangerous new weapon systems. That has to be terminated quickly, or we're in serious trouble. That can be done. Uh, all of these things can be done. There's plenty of options open. I don't think there's a shortage of causes to engage in actively. Problem is the will to do it. You mentioned getting the various segments of the left together. They have to get together on these things. You can differ on other things, but there are some major things that are just essential for literally for human survival. And yes, they have to be worked on hard. And I think most of the population is ready for them. And, you know, talking about um, climate change as, as this existential threat, which I think we all, obviously we all agree that it is, I think that it's, it's you know, when I think about it and I think about, you know, we live under capitalism, market society, profit-driven society, it just seems like we won't be able to truly fix the climate problem until we move beyond capitalism in some way, um, which traditionally we've called basically socialism. Like, do you think it's still useful to think about it in those terms as a sort of political horizon? It's useful, but there are some facts we have to remember. One of them is time scale. We have a decade or two to deal decisively with the environmental crisis. We're not going to overthrow capitalism in a couple of decades. I think that doesn't mean you stop working for it. You can continue working for it, but recognizing that the solution is going to have to come within some kind of regimented capitalist system, not the neoliberal system. There are a variety of kinds of capitalism. So you go back to the pre-neoliberal period, this period of so-called regimented capitalism, very different from this. And within that framework of uh, serious uh, government control of the uh, uh, destructive excesses of unleashed capitalism, you have a chance to proceed. Meanwhile, you should be doing exactly what you said, trying to undermine these. And again, I think people can understand it. Take the fundamental evil of capitalism which was always understood by traditional socialists, namely the fact that you have to have a job. We consider having a job a wonderful thing. Working people in the early industrial revolution regarded it as an obscenity, a fundamental attack on essential human rights and dignity. Now, that was such a strong position that it was a slogan of the Republican Party under, under Lincoln that uh, 
wage labor differs from slavery only in that it's temporary till you can become a free person. Well, that can be implemented by worker control of the enterprises in which they are part. You're not going to get it in, actually you can't even get it in one step like worker-owned enterprises, which are proliferating. But you can get it by a series of steps, like uh, even which have been proposed, like uh, Warren and Sanders proposed uh, worker representation on the corporate managing boards. It's not very radical. Germany has it, for example, conservative country. But it gives you some step forward. You can move forward beyond that with actual direct action on the ground, like, for example, worker-owned enterprises, to changing the nature of the way in which the capitalist system works. You have a carbon tax. Don't do it. They did it in France, Macron, which led to the Yellow Vest movement. A carbon tax, which hits the working class, designed to hit the working class. Yeah, you do that, you're going to get an uprising. You can have a carbon tax which, in which the revenue is returned to the public in a progressive manner. Then it benefits the working class. Yes, you pay a little more for gas, but you get more in return. Same with uh, health care. Save a huge amount of money if we had a universal health care system. But you are going to pay higher taxes. And you'll mm-hmm. save twice that much on your insurance premiums. So if you get that to people, okay, those are the tasks for the left, educational, organizational, activist. I think there's a tremendous range of opportunities available, but it's not enough to know what to do. You have to do it. Yeah. Wow. Uh- uh, Professor Chomsky, uh, we're going to have to wrap up the interview pretty soon, but I wanted to make sure to give you um, a note because it's important. First of all, I don't know how uh, people like you who's experienced so much, including being banned from legacy media publications for your uh, opinions, uh, can remain either, uh someone who's optimistic. You seem to still be pretty optimistic about what can be accomplished in the future. Uh, but I wanted to give you a note from uh, one of my journalism students who in the past semester uh, was required in my class to read Manufacturing Consent. And after the class was over, he sent me an email um, saying that, you know, this is an upper division of journalism class, so he's going to graduate soon. And he felt pretty disconnected uh, from this line of work and felt that, you know, he wasn't excited about it. He saw that, you know, journalists really just read from a script or, you know, do what their editors tell them to do. But reading your book um, lit a fire within him. And all of a sudden he has uh, this passion for journalism that he didn't feel before. Um, so I just wanted to, you know, give you my um, wholehearted appreciation for the work that you've done, not just in manufacturing consent, but for uh, challenging people's preconceived notions and, and encouraging them to continue to fight for a more, more just society. Um, and I'll, I'll end this with one more question to you. How do you remain optimistic uh, that we can fight successfully for real change uh, that benefits ordinary people? One easy way is to just look at what I see on the screen. People committed to struggling for a better world. 
and there are plenty of people like you. Okay, perfectly good reason to be optimistic. I mean, I can't do it much more, getting too old, but I used to travel around a lot to some of the poorest, most oppressed areas of the world, uh, Laos, uh, southern Colombia, uh, Kurdish areas in Turkey, uh, Palestinian refugee camps, most miserable places you can find. Plenty of people are optimistic. They don't give up. Incomparably worse conditions than ours. And opportunity, we have opportunities they can't dream of. But they don't give up. They're struggling. You go to a poor rural community in, in uh, Colombia, you know, hours away from the highway, uh, get to the community, the first thing you see is a small cemetery where graves, white crosses for people who were killed in the latest paramilitary attack. Get into the town, welcome, have a meal, go to a meeting. They're talking about how to save the mountain next to them from corporate predators who'll destroy their water supply and so on. But they're struggling optimistically. I mean, you see people like that everywhere here too. How can you not share in their optimism with all of our privileges and advantages? Well, Professor Noam Chomsky, thank you so much again for taking the time to speak with us. Uh, we covered a lot of ground here, and it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Um, hopefully, you'll come on again in the future. Hope so. Absolutely. Thank you, Professor. Well, uh, I've just been here eating popcorn and watching Noam Chomsky, the best. He's the absolute best. Um, Anna and Anna are out, uh, ooh, and I'm missing my little... There we go. Kind of the J. Um, if people have any questions to end, I can try to answer them. Otherwise, I would just ask everyone to please hit like, please hit subscribe. Please share this, uh, the conversation prior, as well as the interview with your friends. Um, you know, it helps us. But of course, I'd like to think that we're hopefully having meaningful conversations. And if we're not, let us know. Put it in the comments and we'll try to do better conversations in the future. Um, yeah, take care, stay safe. Hopefully talk to you all pretty soon.